just going to make another adjustment. Is that better? Free hearing aids with PRSI at Specsavers. Music to your ears. Find out more online. Terms and conditions apply. gap year. That teenage rite of passage. Away from the family, the freedom to explore different cultures, the great buildings and art of Europe, the food, new friends and fun, and of course the shopping. One of the better modern inventions. Except of course that it is at least 300 years old. The Grand Tour, as it was originally called in the 18th century, was redefined repurposed and renamed for later generations and markets, with considerable help from one Thomas Cook. He was the man who gave us tourism, and now thanks to him, we can all become grand tourists. So join us as we look at how those male tourists sampled life abroad, at where they traveled, stayed, and how they experienced life, and at how women got in on the act and also how the tour became available to all of us. Travellers who decided to stay on or extend their tour once they reached Rome and had explored the area would be likely to spend some time taking in the ancient sites of Pompeii and Herculaneum. The excavations were so successful in the 1730s and 40s that there was considerable interest in and collecting from the site. Mosaics and frescoes, villas, statues, wells, all drew enthused grand tourists. However, there was also considerable interest in the lesser known town of Herculaneum, which was discovered in the 1700s. It was almost intact due to the eruption which covered it in ash. The Roman summer resort, some nine miles from Pompeii, was covered by a pyroclastic flow, which ironically preserved roofs, doors, and even beds, as well as street outlines. The two cities were near to Naples, with of course its splendid views and indeed climbs up Mount Vesuvius. Naples was a popular spot for tourists. One reason being the nearby legendary entrance to the underworld and the cave of the Sibyl. Young tourists who had studied Latin and the classics at school would have some interest in seeing an inspiration for Virgil's story, the Aeneid. The site was at the Greek colony of Cumae, home to the Sibyl, who lived at the gateway to the underworld. In the 1700s, there was actually more interest in life after death than there is today, possibly because death was often seen as involving punishment for deeds in your former life. The Kumai Sibyl reputedly rejected the interest of the god Apollo, who granted her any wish she desired in return for her virginity. Initially, she accepted, asking to live for as long 
as the grains in a handful of sand. Then she reconsidered and refused Apollo. Now, he didn't do rejection well. Furious, he granted her wish without telling her that she also needed eternal youth. Hence, she agreed to a lifetime where all that remained of her was a voice. The site and entrance to the underworld is in a cave in a rock overlooking the sea. Today it is well lit and remains an interesting experience. However, in the 1700s, it was dark and for many, a site for accidents just waiting to happen. With a dramatic triangular entrance, it has been described by many as representing femininity and fertility, with a long birth canal leading to a dark oval uterus. In this cave, the Sibyl would prophesy your fate. And as the poem says, the gates of hell are open night and day. Smooth the descent and easy is the way. But to return and view the cheerful skies, in this the task and a mighty labour lies. But of course Naples had another attraction, the home and entertainments of the British ambassador Sir William Hamilton and his wife, the famed beauty Emma. More of her later. As entertainments, Emma performed attitudes in which she posed, prettily draped in folds of cloth, representing classical sculptures and paintings. Suitably enthralled visitors had to guess her characters. And unsurprisingly, these entertainments were very popular. Our grand tourist had a choice at this stage. To take a boat back to England with a two-week trip, via the Bay of Biscay, of course, or make his way overland to the English Channel. One must-see spot was the University of Bologna. The oldest continuous university in the world was founded in 1088 by an organized guild of students. It was also the first university, as we know them, to offer higher learning and degrees, and the first to utilize the word university. Its list of students contains some of the great names of scientific advancement, including Petrarch and Copernicus. The traveler then turned north towards Milan or Turin. If like many, he was heading for the Low Countries, that's today's Belgium and the Netherlands, then the route would involve another trip through the Mont Cenis Pass with a large tip for the bearers. His, and increasingly her, shopping would take the sea route home. The first destination en route would be Geneva. The city, home to Calvinism and once dubbed the Protestant Rome, was a must-see destination for cultural, political and religious reasons. Geneva, of course, was also a city of commerce and internationally famed for its banking. Many of its industries have faded over the centuries, with the exception of watchmaking. Its scenery, of course, was spectacular. The traveller then moved on up the Rhine with the splendid sights of the Vosges and Black Forest Mountains on either side en route to Strasbourg. Much of its timbered buildings still remain, now, of course, in the heart of the EU. But the prettiest part is agreed to be Little Venice, with its timber-framed houses and bridges over canals. 
Next came the must-see city of Heidelberg. Noted for its connections with the rise of Romanticism, its Baroque architecture, and of course, its university. It played a part in the growth of the Renaissance, humanism, and the German Reformation, and its library dates from 1421. For many travelers, however, over the centuries, the student history and the beautiful surroundings were a big part of the attraction. The philosopher's walk with beautiful views out over the old town was much admired, as was Heidelberg Castle, dating to the 1300s and scarred by fire and war. For many, there was the attraction of the city's involvement in the growth of Romanticism. This emphasised medieval art and nature, as opposed to the Age of Enlightenment with its scientific rationality. However, when the students had debated enough, well, there was also the famous drinking culture of the city, which became famed from the 1820s onwards. Parties could last until six in the morning. Small wonder there was also student prison. Dating from the 1780s, it is one of the city's most popular tourist sites, and from 1823 probably was well used when public order laws were brought in. Germany was not then the country that we now know, of course. It had some 26 states, ranging from kingdoms and various duchies to city-states. The Low Countries, which we know today as Belgium and the Netherlands, were then part of often warring European empires or countries. Both were involved in trade and business. Amsterdam's Golden Age was, of course, legendary. However, in a practical sense, the travellers found that standards on river transport in this area were reassuringly high. On one canal barge trip between Ghent and Bruges, the traveller's menu offered boiled beef, stewed veal and fowl, plus mutton, with boiled peas and French bean stew. Desserts included plum apricots, biscuits and butter cheese, plus ice cream. Visitors to the area soon found themselves surrounded by magnificent buildings such as Lille, noted for its cotton weaving, plus wool production at Roubaix and Tourcoing, and of course Ypres with its magnificent cloth hall. Belgium had followed England into the Industrial Revolution in the 1790s with coal, textiles and iron, and was a force of development. The country was also noted for its churches, cathedrals and religious orders. Many churches held works of art by old masters, such as the famous Adoration of the Lamb by Van Eyck, the Ghent altarpiece, the Bruges Madonna is the only Michelangelo known to have left Italy in his lifetime. Holland, as it was then known, had passed its golden age, but could still maintain the magnificence of the 16th century. It remained an economic force in Europe. Merchants still lived in the splendid canal mansions. But it was the 60 miles of canals that fascinated most visitors, Herrengracht, Kaisergracht and Prinzengracht were the main arteries. In the 17th century, a fleet of thousands of small barges carried goods to and from every area of the city, from 1,000 warehouses. And there were also floating markets. As well as canals, the Dutch had become experts in low-level pumping of water and land reclamation. Amsterdam's planning intrigued all visitors. 
so did the city itself, still a major trading port for diamonds exchanges. Amsterdam and Antwerp in Belgium were major centres in diamonds. Of course, Holland had other visitor draws as well as the splendours of Amsterdam. Its beautifully preserved towns and cities, such as Leiden, with its ancient, well-regarded university, Pretty Delft and Utrecht, and the powerful port and trading city of Rotterdam all remain, as well as the art of Vermeer, Rembrandt, Haltz and Hobima. The country's canals weren't just important in the main cities. They became icy highways in the cold winters. Horse-drawn barges kept traffic flowing and goods moving. The Dutch literally got their skates on and their rivers of ice allowed business to continue and also contact as they linked up towns and cities. It's somewhat ironic that English grand tourists in Europe, admiring the pretty towns and cities in Germany and Holland, couldn't have guessed or known that for a century England would be reigned over by members of their regal families. William of Orange was born in The Hague and with his Queen Mary reigned in England from 1689 to 1703. The Hanoverian kings George I, II, III and IV, William IV and of course Queen Victoria and Edward VII all had German relatives. But in 1917, King George V in the middle of World War I, established the House of Windsor, leaving the House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, which had been created by Queen Victoria. For our grand tourists, it was now time to head for home. And that meant going down the coast to Ostend for the packet boat to England. When returning home after a holiday, one major task for most of us is packing up all the purchases and thinking about the cost of excess baggage. It gives some idea of the scale of Grand Tour shopping when we learn that their purchases often went home by merchant shipping. Well, small wonder there was so much to buy. Prints, medals, maps, before you got to the big purchases, such as statues, works of art, tiling, cloth, books. Cities were happy to welcome the English milords and their ladies. Venice had delectable silks and snuff boxes. Urano was justly famed for its glass. Milan had swords and canes. And you couldn't leave Florence without some amber or myrrh and musk or bergamot. Genoa was the place for point lace and velvet, whilst Bologna was noted for its snuff and sausage. Masked lovers enjoyed Modena, and invested in quite a few Roman prints, medals, and art. You wanted cashmere-milled gloves? Turin was your place. However, portable souvenirs were just one aspect of the Grand Tour and its influence on society and culture. One enthusiast returned home with some 878 pieces of luggage, and another brought back 25 pounds of chocolate, most likely for drinking. But business was also starting to take an interest in the Grand Tour. Many people dismiss the experience as an example of spoiled, rich and indulged, often titled folk amusing themselves. 
because they could afford to. Yet there was considerably more to the experience and its resulting influences affect us to this day. Influences of the tour were varied. There was interest in the classical architecture, art, interiors, statuary and furniture. Envoys were sent to Europe to commission copies or versions of the new styles of architecture and design, as well as copies of prints, ornaments, mosaics. The list went on. Josiah Wedgwood, who was based in Stoke-on-Trent, was already famed for his jasper ware. That's the blue pottery that we know today. But when one of his patrons, the Duke of Portland, brought back the beautiful Barberini glass vase, after his tour, he loaned it to Wedgwood for a year. Four stressed years later, the classical relief pattern was finally set against black jasper to become associated permanently with Wedgwood. Then there was what we now call the hospitality industry. Innkeepers decided that it might be worthwhile to upgrade inns, plus its food, to attract business. Hotels appeared, some quite luxurious. And in the 19th century, railways challenged coach services. Boats changed from carrying just cargo to carrying passengers and cargo. Maps and travel guides underwent radical change, originally created to display geography for courts and envoys. 3D design displayed mountains, roads, rivers and country borders, even minor towns. And the Italians added bird's eye view drawings. Seven inch by five inch versions of the road atlas appeared as independent travel grew in popularity. The bear leader, once a figure of amusement, morphed into the well-paid and much sought after tour guide. Diaries, with blank pages for personal sketches, became popular. From food to art, clothes to furniture and architecture, there was serious business potential in the making. Some young Irishmen took the grand tour as business guides, agents and scouts, ordering job lots of drawings, art and sculpture on site. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. The tour and its souvenirs and purchases had an effect on public taste in architecture, art, books, clothes, food, history, and of course, travel. Business was quick to take advantage of this and Ireland enjoyed some benefits. 
Luke Gardner, first Viscount Mountjoy, took the tour in the 1770s, visiting Florence, Venice and Rome. A self-made man, a politician and property developer, his Dublin patch stretched from the Royal Canal and Dorset Street with what are now Parnell Square and O'Connell Street, south to the River Liffey. His sons continued the development. The city's world-famed Georgian architecture includes the buildings of the now City Hall and, of course, the Custom House and the Old Parliament Building, which is now Bank of Ireland. The first Earl of Charlemont also went to Europe for his tour and had the famous architect William Chambers design the casino at Marino, which still stands, on his then estate. Dublin became internationally famed for its Georgian architecture, including the record-holding longest Georgian terrace in Europe, from Merion and Fitzwilliam Squares to Fitzwilliam Place. It had views from the Dublin mountains to Malahide. Sadly, after 150 years, the record ended when the ESB knocked out 20 houses for its modern headquarters. But what about the lesser noted, rarer type of grand tourists? The women who braved the journey. The majority of travellers were men, partly because women's lives in the 1700s and 1800s were usually based around home, children and estate, and partly because they usually had no money for travel. Their money was handled by their male relatives. A few women were heiresses, but even then, social pressures, practical and family concerns would discourage or deter them from taking the risk of travel. Also, women did not tend to be well-educated then, excepting the blue stockings, as they were dismissively called, after the woolen stockings worn by workers, rather than the elegant black silk types. There was also the male concern that a firstborn child and heir to an estate might well have been fathered by a charming, handsome tutor, a musician, or even a coach driver. In reality, of course, the women who did take the Grand Tour were varied and often fascinating. Their lives give clear picture of roles for women at the time, whatever their social class. Emma Hamilton was born in Cheshire in 1761, the daughter of a blacksmith. After spells as a dancer, actress and maid at Drury Lane Theatre, she began to live with Charles Greville, ironically, the nephew of her future husband. In fact, Greville, in 1786, pawned her off on Sir William Hamilton, his uncle, who was also envoy to the Kingdom of Naples. This was in return for Hamilton's payment of Greville's debts. Emma set off on her grand tour in 1786, complete with her mother, but she had fostered out her baby. She had been painted by Romney and was already a famed beauty, bright, elegant, and keen to meet the man who had paid for her tour, aged 21. She soon realised that Lord Hamilton loved her and also that her daughter had been sent off to be trained, plus the fact that climbing the social ladder was probably her best option. Emma 
still living with her mother in apartments, became close to the local aristocracy and royal family. She learned French and Italian and how to sing. Now an excellent hostess, she married Lord Hamilton in 1791. Emma became known for her scantily dressed attitudes, portrayals of sculptures and art from Cleopatra to Medea, which of course delighted guests. Two years later, she welcomed the living legend Horatio Nelson. The pair soon fell in love and Emma played a part in communication between him and the Neapolitan queen. She's also said to have helped get Neapolitan food and water for the British fleet. In 1800, Nelson was recalled to Britain and Emma, now pregnant, accompanied him. However, three years later, he was dead, leaving Emma with his daughter, Horatia. Emma inherited money from both Hamilton and Nelson, but sadly spent most of it and was imprisoned for debt, dying in exile in 1815. Mary Shelley, born in 1797, was of course author to Frankenstein, which she wrote during a grand tour with Lord Byron and the poet Shelley. As the daughter of the radical feminist philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft, and the radical philosopher William Goodwin, well, she was never going to be a quiet, domesticated, traditional type of girl. Her mother died just days after her birth and her father remarried, giving Mary a stepsister, Claire. Mary was well-educated, courtesy of tutors and her father's library, but innocent, falling for the charms of the young, married poet Shelley. They eloped to travel in France, where Mary lost, prematurely, their first child. In 1816, Byron invited them to join his grand tour in Switzerland, where they stayed nearby, but in considerably less style than the Villa Diodati. After the eruption of the volcano Tamboro, it was a summer of striking sunsets and also continuous rain and cold. To pass the time at the Villa Diodati, where Byron was based, he suggested a ghost story competition. Famously, Byron's doctor and friend, Polidori, wrote The Vampire, later an influence, of course, on Dracula. And Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Its gory detailing of body parts, of stolen and severed heads, played on the contemporary horror of the body snatchers. After that summer, Mary and Shelley returned home. In 1817, fear of debtors' prison and of losing their children drove them back to Italy. However, tragically, both of the children, Clara and William, died. Work brought some comfort, and Percy was born in 1819. They all then toured Italy, infamously to the Villa Magni. Shelley died in 1822 off the Gulf of Spezia in a boating accident, and Mary miscarried. She then resolved to live by her pen and her son, and was largely successful, dying in 1851. Then, of course, there was Lady Hester Piozzi, born in 
Born in 1740 or 1741, the only daughter of an Anglo-Welsh family in Carnarvon, Hester would go on to break virtually all the rules for women in the 18th century, but possibly win at the game. As the only daughter to the Salisbury family, her family was powerful and long-standing, and Hester was educated to a high level. However, the family made a bad investment in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Hester was encouraged to marry a rich local brewer, Henry Thrale. We don't know how happy they were. It was then not really expected in a marriage for women. Hester bore 12 children in all, but only four survived to adulthood. However, she was able to enter London society and met the literary giant Samuel Johnson, who fell in love with her. Whilst she and Henry were not always happy, she was distressed when he died in 1781. However, at this stage she had in mind a writing career and Samuel Johnson was on hand to help her. As Hester was close to and got on so well with him, everyone expected that the pair would marry after a suitable period of mourning. However, whilst Johnson had a brilliant mind and he certainly was attracted to Hester, he was also 30 years her senior, overweight, with swollen legs and feet, an involuntary twitch, gout, and shortness of breath. Many people were unaware that Hester was also in love with an Italian musician and composer who taught her children music. When it was announced that she would marry Gabriel Piazzi, well, she was breaking almost every code of her social group. Now a wealthy and eligible widow, she was marrying a man from a foreign country of a different religion, society and social background with definitely no fortune. The social media of its day, plus the gossips, social diarists and society papers had a field day. She lost friends, including Dr. Johnson, and was the butt of jokes plus reminders that she would invariably lose her place in society. Did this phase Hester? Not at all. She decided to expand her writing to include travel commentary. With her new, handsome husband, she set off on the Grand Tour. Hearing of Johnson's death, she swiftly compiled a book of his anecdotes and even more swiftly returned to England and later went on to write another book on Samuel Johnson. So, in retrospect, did the comments, jokes and put-downs, plus the loss of friendships and contacts, bother her? She simply moved on and continued to write. Her gossipy diaries and letters detailing her Italian experiences drew readers. Well, who didn't want to know the best places to buy point lace, glass or riding habits? Her style, anecdotal and humorous, developed. She later moved into diary publication and with Gabriel moved to a new house on her North Wales estate. And some 200 years later, she remains a subject of interest to social historians and readers alike after her death in Bristol in 1821. By the 1840s, the new railways had made travel 
considerably more comfortable and increasingly popular with the new wealthy middle class. One man was ready and at hand to develop this movement fully. Thomas Cook grew up in the English Midlands. The legendary tour organiser was born in 1808 and grew up as a devout Christian and a member of the temperance movement. His legend started with a trip between Leicester and Loughborough when he organised a temperance meeting. He quickly followed it up with another temperance meeting and looked at the results. His first for-profit trip was to Liverpool from Derby and Nottingham, and it showed him the huge potential of the railways and the hunger for travel. In 1884, he organised a trip to the much-talked-of Paris exhibition of 1855. Its success led to the Grand Tour of Europe in the form of international package holidays, taking in Brussels, Strasbourg and Paris. Business boomed and Thomas, his brother, came on board the plan. Palestine, Egypt, North Africa came next. In 1872, Thomas Cook offered the first round the world tour. There were also some innovations introduced by him that we know well today. Traverse checks, and he also became involved in military transport. Despite all the criticism they receive for privilege, money and contacts, we have plenty for which to thank those early tourists. They were brave, facing accidents and attacks on the roads, unsafe sea travel, disease and illness, with no hospital insurance, or in many cases, no hospitals. Somewhat ironically, we now, post-pandemic, face our own travel problems, some of which sound quite familiar. International pandemic flare-ups, transport problems, local infection rate rise, cancellations. Yep, we really are all grand tourists now.
Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.